We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh, visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons this episode is brought to you by The Last Good Night and The Last Mile by Kat Martin from Kensington Books. Kat's tightly plotted, action-packed romances are just as steamy as they are thrilling. With over 16 million copies sold, Kat Martin is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of over 65 novels with scores of loyal fans. You know she's hit her romance 10,000 hours. With this series, Kat Martin has never been better. Perfect for fans of Nora Roberts, Sandra Brown, J.D. Robb, Linda Howard, Heather Graham. Suffice to say, the Bloodline series uses more than one way to get hearts racing, if you know what I mean. This contemporary Colorado set doubleheader starts with The Last Good Night. When Cade Logan said goodbye to his estranged wife eight years ago, he never thought it would be the last time he saw her alive. Now her car has been hauled out of a nearby lake and Cade is determined to track down the man who murdered her. Enter Eleanor Bowman, a talented private dick who's about to stir up a hornet's nest on his Colorado ranch. Or maybe you want to jump straight into book two, The Last Mile, when Abigail Holland awakes to the sound of a nighttime intruder in her rambling Denver Victorian. She knows exactly what the black shrouded figure is after the map she recently inherited from her grandfather. Whoever he is, the man is willing to kill for the location of a treasure known as the Devil's Gold. What a sinister name for a treasure! With a killer pursuing her and her own family not to be trusted, Abby decides to take up the search herself. But she'll need help to do it. And there's no one better than renowned explorer and treasure hunter, Gage Logan. Hell yeah, those are two kick-ass hero names. Maybe you want to read them both back to back, reverse order at the same time. Whichever choice you choose, whether you lean more double indemnity or Indiana Jones or both, this series has something for the suspense fan as well as the romance fan. Pick up Blood Ties series book one, The Last Good Night, or book two, The Last Mile by Kat Martin, wherever books are sold. And you can find out more on kensingtonbooks.com. Mwah! I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About getting your guts buffeted. About unicorns. About being a patriot. About your weird maiden aunt who you like but are also constantly annoyed by. (laughs) About driplets melting from fabric and exploring the inside of your thighs in an oddly dulcet manner. 
about that one guy that you met at a bar that you just can't get out of your head. About his raking invasions of love fluids. <laughs> I'm so glad that you highlighted that because I did too. <laughs> but mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. And this week, Morgan, that's me, and Isabeau are joined by Chelsea Upton, better known as Chels, C-H-E-L-S underscore e-books, E-B-O-O-K-S, on TikTok. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, God. No one, no one can say we aren't with it. That... My hello felt like a ghost of a hello. It was the memory of a hello. Mm. I'm here from 1984. (laughs) Incredible. Well, we're very excited to have you all the way from 1984, which is when the book is from that we're going to discuss, which is The Windflower by Laura London, which Chelsea, you picked out. So why'd you pick... The Windflower by Laura London. Um, yes. So I I am kind of fascinated by The Windflower. I think The Windflower is a book that I read before I really started getting more into like bodice rippers and older historical romance novels. And it's almost kind of like a really good bridge between the two because something that's kind of notable about The Windflower is that it's very tonally different than a lot of the books that came out in the same years. It almost seems like a screwball comedy. Yeah. Like, it, like it, it's a book that has fun. It does put you through the ringer a few times, and it's not a perfect book, but it's it it's memorable. When I first read it, I I had I can't really remember why I first read it, but when I did first read it, I I thought that it felt like very unique and like nothing that I had read before. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I I think that's the case. Yeah. It's just, it's just kind of, it's kind of a wild time. It is a wild time. It feels, especially, obviously we do spoilers on the podcast, but some of the most homoerotic parts of Moby Dick are also very present in the Windflower. (laughs) We spend a lot of time in the forecastle with a lot of biceps and there's only one hetero lady to like ameliorate that space, which obviously Moby Dick doesn't have. But there were a couple of times where I'm like, "Mm, they don't care if you're here, Mary. (laughs) They really didn't. Exactly. And it's like, it's all the better for it. (laughs) When you chose the Windflower, I was weary for two reasons, because we've said like, we're not going to read a romance novel written by a heterosexual man again. And yet, Laura London is actually... Tom and Sharon Curtis. Yeah, yeah. A husband and wife. Yeah. Which is really interesting and really rare. And then the other thing is, I'm always terrified of reading a pirate romance because we read A Pirate's Love by Joanna Lindsay very early on in our career. (laughs) And I'm still shaken. (laughs) I'm glad we went back to the trough of Joanna Lindsay, but that was not a good way to start. Yeah. That was that was pretty intense. And so, but the windflower really upset say, a lot of my expectations. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read the back of the book. Just for anybody who's not familiar. And we'll start from there. Mary Wildling. And it's important to note that Mary is spelled like happy, not like 
uh, the virgin. Mary Wilding is a lady of breeding, of innocence, and of breathtaking beauty. With high hopes for a holiday in England, she sets sail for New York, but the tide of her life is destined to turn. Mistakenly swept aboard an infamous pirate ship, Mary finds herself at the mercy of a wicked crew and one sinfully handsome pirate. Soon she's spending her days yearning for escape and her nights learning the pleasures of captivity. (laughs) Devin Crandall believes Mary is in league with his greatest enemy. He's determined to slowly urge secrets from her, but along the way he discovers her beautifully unbreakable spirit and a desire unlike any he's ever known. She's hiding something from him, and yet each day that passes brings her deeper into his heart. When fierce arguments give way to fiercer passion, can a pirate learn to love a woman? Or will true love be lost at sea? <laughs> a woman? A woman? <laughs> Brandy. <laughs> a good wife you would be, but my life, my love, and my lady is the sea. It sounds like there's a lot of rape happening. Based on the back of the book, she's miserable all day and then learning the pleasures of captivity at night. Yeah. I still, like, kind of classify this. Like, I've been telling people that it's a bodice ripper. I guess, like, in, like, the strictest sense, it's not. But they're, yeah. the first half, it kind of was just, like, when is Devin going to take that next step? to assault Mary is kind of like the big question mark, which is like a weird thing that people talk about. Like it's like an open subject of discussion between all the pirates. It's apparently a thing Devin does. Yeah. Even though we're never like let in on the particularities of it. (laughs) I don't know if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling generous, I'm like maybe all sex was understood that way. And the good folks behind Laura London are trying to do like a historical con contextual concept of how sex would be perceived by a bunch of body pirates (laughs) but it 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 still feels like very sticky because it doesn't happen that way it doesn't happen that way and Charles, as you pointed out the romantic tension that spins between mary and devon is this question of when is she gonna push him to assault her at multiple times she's like well if you're gonna rape me just rape me there are multiple times where we're in his head where he's like it would just be easier if i did this or like this is the moment where i don't want to and i'll do it later and it's like what a weird way to spin romantic, air quotes, tension between our two main characters. And it does. It drives half of their interactions for the first half of the novel. It's, uh, and it's like, it's like, and it's alluded to very early on. Like, there's like a line where Mary is thinking, uh, she asks uh, her aunt, what do pirates do to women? And then um, it's, it's something that's talked about, like, Devin, uh, her love interest uh rand morgan the pirate captain cat like every single one of them at some point has a discussion with devon or with mary like when is this gonna happen and it's it's never about when mary will allow it to happen although cat has different side conversations with mary about like what she should do and what she can do to manipulate devon but yeah it's kind of like a uh it's interesting. The book doesn't take it super seriously as like a danger to Mary for a lot of it. It feels like it tries to keep that really lighthearted tone. 
And knowing that they never go through with it, I think, is maybe why they can why they felt that that was the way that they should do that. Normally, I kind of prefer like a threat of violence to be portrayed as a threat of violence instead of a joke. But for but, but yeah, the windflower is very totally weird. And it kind of like and there's never really a point that you think Mary is actually going to get hurt. The book makes it incredibly clear at like many, many, many times. Like she's the pirate's favorite yeah, and she's protected from other violence because they assume she's doing something with Devin, or she like belongs to Devin at the very least. The only people who know about her uh, maidenhead are Kat, who assumes it based entirely on her personality, even though a threat of an examination is levied against her. And Rand also, I think, just like knows all. He's like an, an omnipotent being and... They double down on that at the very end of the novel. They do. I like, I want to save Rand because I actually have a lot of thoughts, and I want I want to get into Cat because that um, was one of my first bait and switches. Where it's like Cat is introduced in the first tavern scene in like August of eighteen thirteen as this incredibly brutal and ruthless boy. So I envisioned like um, a Skarsgård child. <laughs> he's Nordic. Um, he's- <laughs> Which one? Which one? A young Alexander. Um, Because Kat is described with this long, beautiful braid. And then when we meet Kat later, when Mary has been abducted accidentally on purpose by these two hired goons that we don't meet again, the the way that Kat treats Mary, I was like, oh, Kat's a female pirate dressed as a boy for protection and is maybe like in a romantic relationship with Rand Morgan, the pirate king. Uh, He has very pirate king Kevin Klein vibes. Um, And boy, howdy. I was like, I just kept waiting for like this gender reveal of Kat that just like literally didn't show up. And I was like, oh, wait, that's what I was bringing to the text. Like, Kat is indeed, like, a human male throughout. And, like, their friendship is so interesting. Yeah, I was just really, I was genuinely surprised that that person stayed a beautiful boy. I, my initial assumption was that this book was wildly progressive. And once I read Kat, I was like, (laughs) yeah, what year was this? And I was like, 1984. Incredible. Yes. Like, because clearly Rand and Kat are lovers and like open lovers. And there's like a scene Mm -hmm. where Kat is wearing like a silk robe in Rand's cabin and they're alone together. And he's like, it talks about him like stretching out his legs and like smoking an opium pipe and um, brushing his hair while he's talking to Rand about and it just felt like such a like romantically intimate moment and I think it had a lot to do with the silk robe <laughs> I was like oh these two they're doing it they're super doing it and Rand consistently refers to Kat as babe yes and like back off babe or like too much babe or like watch yourself babe and it's like it's so intimate and so familiar and really quite loving. Kat seems to carry this like special secret knowledge that the rest of the men on the ship don't have, which is very much a trope in romance. Anytime there's a gay man, he somehow like braces the like masculine and feminine. And I just, uh, yeah, 
So uh, it turns out he's um, straight. Uh, he likes to have sex with ladies and and not like gentle sex either. <laughs> Which is like, what okay. the fuck? <laughs> yeah, cat. Strange and disappointing dark horse. So, yeah, so kind of like a really interesting thing about Kat. So Kat, like, is a fan favorite. Um, I think back in, like, 2014, Tom and Sharon Curtis, who are Laura London, like, they a lot, all of their books got reissued uh, as ebooks, And they did an interview with All About Romance. And they asked them, like, are you going to give us Kat's story? And they were like, yeah, sure. But, like, nothing came of it. <laughs> Kat, to me, is really interesting because Kat is um, – like the reason why a cat identifies with Mary so much, like they, it's like noted that their relationship is very platonic, which is like every but other pirate is like lusting after Mary. But Cat is kind of like an aloof person who's like most of his affection is for Rand, the pirate captain. And kind of like what when I was thinking about it, um, the thing that Cat and Mary kind of have in common is that they're both assault victims in a type of way. And so when Mary is abducted by Kat and brought on board, like everybody is like kind of like taken aback by how protective of Kat, of Mary Kat is. Um, at one point, Rand says that give him a week and he'll be pre-masticating her dinners. Like he's like, he's like maternal towards her. Um, and like when, when she gets malaria and she's on the ship, uh, on the top of the ship um, and De- Devin, instead of like trying to, grab her himself and like take up take control of the situation he has raven go get cat and has cat handle it because cat and mary have this like kind of like tender connection i don't think yeah cat isn't gay i remember last time reading it thinking that cat was bisexual and reading it now it's clear that cat isn't but rand it seems like rand is yeah there's a line cathcart who is cat's aristocratic because cat is an aristocrat as well yeah there's no actual there's no true pirates here of course well raven raven is actually my favorite (laughs) (laughs) yeah sound of body soft of heart (laughs) um but yeah cathcart uh when he to do when he was like getting upset uh about mary being kidnapped and like what could have possibly be have happened to mary devon assures her i assure you that Rand morgan isn't interested in young girls and like the the implication is that he's not interested in girls at all mm-hmm. which would certainly be the implication like i think one of the things that i really wrestle with and i'm like taken aback by with the windflower is that I have a lot of assumptions about books from this era, like romance novels from this era, and yet every time I read one, I desperately want it to, like, blow those assumptions up. And then I'm shocked when they do (laughs) and, like, gravely disappointed when they don't. And I think, like, The Windflower is, like, a real uh, concentration of those. I really want – like, the assumption is when you say someone isn't interested in young girls – that doesn't mean like their age is the point of reference. It's the gender. And then it's like at the same time, like it is very clear that like there's that is then implying that Rand Morgan is interested in men sexually, but he's not villainized. 
as the other characters who are admittedly interested in men sexually are. It's just, it's like a real jumble of feelings <laughs> because of this. The stew is very strange. And I think, Chels, you're right to say that one of the first, like, building linkages between Kat and Mary is this, like, trauma of, in Mary's case at that point, potential assault and, like, I think Kat really identifies with that and, like, feels it strongly um, and does take on this real maternal role on the pirate ship, which is called the Black Joke. Such a good name. Such a great name for a pirate ship. And and I was so worried it was going to be the wind. <laughs> <laughs> the Black Joke is so good. And they just refer to it as the joke, which I also think is an amazing shortening of that. But, like, Kath really takes on this very particular kind of caretaking role and really takes responsibility for Mary in particular ways. Like, at one point... Uh, Mary is trying to escape and escapes in a leaky boat and is going to drown. And they have to clap Cat in irons to keep Cat from jumping into the rough seas to rescue Mary because, of course, she has to be rescued by our main male character, Devin, so he can be heroic. But all of these ways in which Cat is affectionate and stalwart I was really impressed, too, that when um, Mary gets her uh, period, Kat, like, she leaves a little note for Kat and just, like, hides underneath the blankets. And Kat's like, all right, I got you. And, <laughs> like, it's just one of those ways in which this character is so incredibly lived in. Like, I felt like I knew them. And then by the end, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> with this person I thought I knew. And I was just like, all of those ways in which I felt like, as Morgan, you said, like, I I was so shocked uh, by Kat's de- depiction of like real maternity, like maternal affection and like this real caretaking. And then just like to have that go nowhere, especially after the really weird fight that he and Rand, the pirate captain have, like... There are, like, many planets in my universe, and you're not the center of it. Like, oof. That, that was, I, that hurt my feelings. Yeah, brutal, and, like, delivered with so much distance. I was like, oh, I felt that one in my, like, solar plexus. I feel like I'm having a deep personal realization because I never read Kat as being maternal. Like, I knew that Kat was, like, taking care of her, but I thought for sure he was also attracted to her, just as much as, like, Raven was. Like, I saw Kat as, like, I felt like Raven existed as a foil for Kat, and Kat and Raven existed clearly as a foil for, like, the man who requires two foils, Devin. (laughs) And, and, like... (laughs) I would even say, like, one of my sexiest parts was, like, between, or a few of them, between Kat and Mary. And I don't know if that's just, like, me. (laughs) You are not the only one that feels that way. I think so many people, after reading this book, are like, why was Devin the hero? Tom and Sharon Curtis do make it, like, they put it in a few times. They, like, he touched her non-sexually. Like, uh, they make it clear that there's, like, a platonic vibe between Kat and Mary's relationship. But, like, I don't know. As, like, a human being who likes emotional connection and finds that extremely romantic, like, it's kind of hard not to, like, 
see their interactions and be like moved by it. Yeah. And well, I also want to talk about this like solar system of men on this ship Mm -hmm. because we have Devin and Devin, I feel like is a unique hero in that he has like some pretty specific characteristics. Like I would consider Devin fastidious and I would consider him type A and posturing. Like I have an idea of his personality, which is not always, I wouldn't even say like not an expectation I have coming into romance novels is that I'm going to see like a fully realized character. Um, as the romantic interest but there's also like two different dads there's sales and there's rand and there's two different other like age appropriate lover well i feel like lovers in raven and cat and then there's also valentine who fulfills this almost when Valentine is the one who cares about her, that's the confirmation that she's like truly like irrepressibly lovable is that Valentine cares about her well-being. Cook, who's like it's it's um it's a weird soup of I mean, we keep saying soup. Every flavor it feels like a boy band almost. <laughs> Yes, or like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Like every personality is represented and she speaks to each one separately and distinctly. Yeah. What's the purpose of that? (laughs) I I mean, like, why why make those choices? And I I also think Kat is clearly not her, like, romantic interest because they actually do have Kat kiss her. And then that kiss is held up in, like, contrast to when she um, kisses Devin. And it's laid out as aloof, basically, like a a business transaction. Like it's clearly very affecting, but it's affecting in an intentional, thoughtful way. It's not like a giving over of oneself. It's not self-expression, right? That's an interesting point to make. It's rare in a romance novel that you'll see the heroine kiss more than one man voluntarily. And not in, like, a bid to make the person she ends up with jealous. Yeah, at one point she tells Devin, because she asks Kat about sex. She asks Kat to teach her, like, what to do, uh, which is kind of like a comedic scene. Um, And then she tells Devin about it. And Devin's reaction is quite, like, he's just like, I actually wrote it down. You probably know more than me. What approach did he take? Skyrockets and roses or gears and pulleys? <laughs> like, I love that. <laughs> and then she responds, no, it was Latin because Kat didn't like my language. We use the Latin terms. So good. This is a very funny book. It was very funny. And that's kind of like when I was reading it again, because like the first time I was like, Cat should have been the love interest. And then when I was reading it for the second time, I realized that a lot of the humor comes from Devin. Like, Devin is really important. So I I think, like, yeah, give Cat his own book. But, like, Devin being Mary's love interest, like, it's uncomfortable in a lot of ways, um, which is expressed a lot because Mary is young and the Windflower 
is a book that like doesn't just tell you she's young. They make you understand how young she is by her getting into political intrigue, not understanding the consequences of it, and then getting kidnapped and crying and crying and crying, um, which becomes a joke, which I thought was very funny. I'm like Team Mary. I really like Mary. I like how much she cries. I like how she jokes about crying. I like how she brags about when she doesn't cry, even though she wants to. Yeah. (laughs) Mary is a truly likable... Yeah, she's... And I think her relatability as a character comes from... Like, when she starts off in the book, she's a country bumpkin, essentially, from the United States, the young, nubile United (laughs) States of America. And she's, like, even an outsider in her own community, so she's so kind of cut off from, like, cultural reference points. And then she gets dropped into this pirate ship, which is full of its own, like, internal structures, but also lots of references to Britannia and the way that that works. And I think it's very relatable as a romance novel reader because I feel like I'm all, especially historicals, you're always dropped into these, like, very British, very old worlds, and then they give you a bunch of terms and you're supposed to be like, oh, yeah moving right along I know what that is that's fine you know and you can kind of fill in the gaps of whatever you think like a peerage might be and I think it's wonderful that we have like a main character who's kind of doing the same thing I also like not only is the main character doing the same thing but one of the things that in the foil between Kat and Devin in like the triangle of the Kat Devin Mary relationship because like not only does Mary, is she, like, game for making fun of herself? Like, she's like, look, I didn't cry. And, like, look, I can pick oakum or whatever. But there's this one thing where, like, they're teaching her body stuff, but they never tell her what it means on the pirate ship. So she's like, are you going to cure me of the clap? I hear you're really good at that. And then Devin looks at Kat immediately. And Kat's like, they just tell her stuff. She doesn't know what it means. She's a baby. They do it so that they laugh themselves into jellyfish about it. And it's like, it is genuinely funny (laughs) and it's how the world actually works like you don't know something until you embarrass yourself trying to like use it in a sentence exactly and there's this other part where like Rand says something really rude to her and she doesn't know that it's she doesn't know what the contours of the rudeness are but she does know that she's been insulted because of his tone of voice and I'm like oh so relatable it's like I don't understand that insult but like I felt it I like I get it and it didn't go over my head but it kind of it was great to read someone who was naive without their naivete being like their entire personality or the only meaningful thing they're naive about is sex Um, because Mary is naive about sex but she's also naive about everything else that comes with being an adult on a pirate ship she really didn't understand what she was doing when she um when she started working with her brother so yeah and that's like so devastating it talks about how her and her brother are estranged and she loves him so much and she looks up to him as you do as like a younger sibling and she feels so important when he brings her into his schemes and yet and and she this whole I told one of the other things I appreciate about this novel is that I I completely understood the stakes like I not only understood them but I felt them. She's worried that if she tells Devin how she got into this pickle who she is, he is going to know that her brother is a spy for the United States, right? 
And she does not want her brother or her cousin to die because of that. Meanwhile, her brother is just, like, throwing her into <laughs> a full-blown, like, pirate intrigue. I, he didn't know the pirates were going to show up. But still, like, taking her to a tavern and things that you just wouldn't normally do if you were a genuinely concerned and invested older sibling yeah he like it was clear that he and her father who is a something to do with being james madison's treasurer friend i don't remember (laughs) treasurer yeah her father is like a a prominent political figure and her brother is a spy and he takes her to the tavern he has marries a talented sketch artist but all she had sketched before then were at the beginning the opening she was drawing rutabagas while thinking about a unicorn she's very young (laughs) yeah and then they kind of like try to like cover their tracks and like like say that they're protecting mary by like stuffing her with a pretending like stuffing her with like a fake pregnancy belly because she's so beautiful people will look at her but if she's pregnant people will not and Devin's like, challenge accepted. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> like, it clearly, it didn't really work. And they didn't think that through. They were like, well, if you just put on a big hat, no one will look at you because they'll be looking at that big hat. Um, I think that I think that tavern scene is kind of like one of the funniest things just because the way that they didn't really think that through very much and the way that the pirates just like did not care about any sort of protection or whatever that they had put in place for themselves and for Mary. I know, like, how do you, how, what's the best way to be sneaky? Put on a really funny, popular puppet show. No (laughs) one will ever remember who you are if you put on a really funny and beloved puppet show. (laughs) You might as well just be Joe Nobody. It is like a very dumb thing. A spy to do, and she's the only one who they like obscure the features of. That's true. That's a good point. I think it's like I don't know. It's like Mary just wants the respect and admiration of her brother, and he only cares about getting the respect and admiration of her father. But that's in like direct opposition to respecting and admiring her aunt who has raised her. And I loved how defensive Mary is about her maiden aunt, which is something we don't see very often in romance novels, which tend to be pretty dismissive of the maiden aunt or use her as like comic relief. Um, But Mary's aunt is like a very dignified, if sad, and lonely person. And I never resented her, even though she gets them into quite a pickle. Uh, I never resented her aunt for it. It makes sense, because her whole thing was that she, uh, she didn't, she was young when she left England. So she had idealized what her life would be like if she went back. And then, um... When And the funny thing is, like, when she does go back, her life is quite similar to what it was before, um, is that she's just, like, really interested in gardening and, you know, isn't really, like, she's not really, like, a high society lady. She just, like, uh, and Mary Mary says something about how, like, America had changed her, but it, I do think that it was kind of, like, maybe necessary for her to, like, her own well-being to, like, see what else was out there. 
I think so too. And like, that's just another one of those things that I think the idea that like these older romances because of their length, and this is a very long book, it gives the authors space to humanize everyone. Like even caricatures have full moments of fleshed out humanness. And like Morgan, as you said, I never resented April. I understood her motivations for both keeping uh, Mary the way that she was and this idealization of her former rich youth that she no longer had. Like the chintz is faded in her weird Virginia home. Uh, She doesn't have reliable help. She has this like indentured servant that we find out later is a plant by the pirate captain. Hilarious. But like April is so sad. And like I I was there was this moment, especially because like Aunt April is constantly writing to her old friends in England and they almost never write back. And Mary has this like indignant feeling for her and she gets so upset on Aunt April's behalf. And Like, that's also a moment of humanizing Mary, right? Where, like, Mary is genuinely kind and she's genuinely compassionate and she genuinely thinks of others. And, like, the fact that it is genuine and constitutive of her personhood does make her universally lovable, which is, like, ugh. But, like, it comes from an earnest place, which made it, made the parts of it that are kind of treacly, like, less offensive to me um because even Kat says it and she says it in this great way where like she or they (laughs) Kat is having a fight with Devin and um you know Devin's like you should have just let me break her and Kat says you can't break her she'll collapse like sugar cake like there's no breaking this person and I thought that was such an interesting difference like break like you break a spirited horse and it's like mary spirited but she doesn't break she literally does just collapse into herself she's gonna cry (laughs) a lot yeah she's gonna cry this is a you know older romance i think gets a bad rap because of its length and because of things like head hopping and purple prose but when those things are done well like they're so pleasurable like the length of this novel gives it plenty of space to explore good ideas like make good ideas good like the unicorn dream carrying through and then we realize oh my god it was in front of us the whole time the unicorn it's always been there and like I love the like rich language. Like I, I mean, sometimes I'm reading stuff that says like driplets, and I'm like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> let's not. But so much of it, I loved being in like the language of the novel, which is so florid. And florid is the right word for the prose. But like florid in a way that's not Kathleen Woodowis desperately grasping at the idea of what an orgasm must be like. Like a holocaust of emotions. <laughs> yeah, like. It's, it feels, it's, it's like using more words to make something more true. And I also think, you know, head hopping, I, I just, I'm tired of like the standard in writing to be doing an Ernest Hemingway impression. I find it to be really boring and like not to be Norman, Norman Mailer, he said he wrote the Executioner song to prove how easy it is to write that way. And then he won the Pulitzer Prize for it. He's like, yeah, I did, you assholes. And it was stupid. My other books are better. He's kind of, not to be, this is not a Norman Mailer fan podcast, but (laughs) it is, like, he's so, 
you know, it's it's clear to me Norman Mailer was trying really hard not to write the Windflower about Gary Gilmore because he did get their astrological charts done in comparison, but none of that appears in the Executioner song. And I think we're all the poorer for it. I would like to point out just like one particular part of this florid prose, just so that our listeners can have a taste of what we're talking about. That sounds quite fun. So this takes place (laughs) in a scene between Devin and uh, Mary where he's seducing her. And it says, under the press of his body, Mary ached in colors, the reds of the shore fires, the brilliant russets fading in the western sky, and the white white milk mist from distant stars she tingled every hue in the prism and I was like okay I'm actually here for that and then it goes on the world was a collection of sweet and vivid light beams and she was one of them and mindless a spinning miscellany of liquid cells when finally he lifted his head his breathing sounded soft while she could barely pull the air in under her sore lungs so good I just None of, like, show me the lie. Feeling like you have li- no, I get like it. Your cells have liquefied. That you're feeling mm-hmm. things in a prism. Yeah, that you are a light beam in a prism. Isn't that what it actually feels like? I think so. I don't know how to describe a holocaust of emotions, but I do know what this is talking about. Exactly. There's a lot of like fairy imagery, like fairy dust and clouds, and uh, like every kind of like. I think the the big like sex scenes like when they're on the island and then also when they're in England like there's there's like there's so much of I I remember he like he he compares her to like an illusion of a fairy or something like yeah I noted that part because it reminded me so much of Jane Eyre and Rochester yeah I also got that always like associating the feelings that a person invokes in you as being supernatural because they're so intense it was quite cute I mean I just love it and I know that like what why why I'm like no I'm already defensive and like no one has told me this is bad no one in this conversation has told me this is bad but I know that when a book wants or a movie or something wants to make fun of romance they talk about text like this and I'm like it's not that it's not that it's just that that is actually good or can be good I the windflower is infinitely readable it is like It's, like, really hard, I think, to, like, write a romance that, like, kind of, like, grabs you by your seat of the pants and then, like, keeps going. Like, I think a lot of, like, the really plot-heavy older historicals, like, they feel like they're punishing you sometimes. I think this one drags in the third act. I think we could have just, we could have got rid of England. Can't we all do without England, really? Well... Tune in next week for the thrilling conclusion and part two of our discussion of the windflower. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Kevlin. And our webmistress is Jane Fontag. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. 
or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mance underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Romance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media/podcast. Until next time. <laughs>